Welcome to Wisdom for Life, where we sift through philosophy to find practical advice that you can use in your everyday life. Hi, I'm Dan Hayes, and I'm joined by my co-host, Dr. Greg Sadler, and today we're talking about... Resiliency. So this is kind of a, a big topic for our current times, right? When we're struggling with all of these new problems and uh, sometimes problems created by other people's solutions as well. <laughs> So what, what is resiliency? It's, it's kind of a buzzword. There's a lot of people who think that we, we just either have it or don't have it. Today we're going to talk about what it is and some, some concepts of it, what philosophy has to contribute. I mean, Dan, what would you say resiliency is if you had to like put it in just a bullet point, one, not even a sentence? A positive adaptation to, despite adversity. Okay. Yeah, so. that's 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 good. So the ability to snap back, you know, when you know the vicissitudes of life hand you a, you know, what lemons? You know, making lemonade out of lemons, right? Lemons or grenades or razor blades or relatives that you have to deal with or you know uh, bullies or anything that that we might encounter, even you know forces of the weather. Uh, we can talk about resiliency. So, so it's it's one of these concepts. It's a it's a kind of new word, though, right? It's not something that Plato and Aristotle and the Stoics talked about as such. Um, I think it's become part of our literature in maybe the last 30, 40 years, right? Yeah, there, there seems to be a lot of research into it, and there's some meta studies, and you know some. Uh, pop psychology, you know, look at, you know, anti-fragile by Tlaib or, um, oh, what was her grit, Angela Duckworth or whatnot. These are all people that have been talking about this recently. Why do you think there's such a fascination with resiliency and concepts that are connected with it, like grit or anti-fragility or uh, perseverance or any, any of these other, it's like a cluster of concepts, right? Why, why are people so, so into this even before the crisis that we're in? Uh, I guess to a certain extent it'd be, I don't know if this is the, the original generating place for it but like definitely i see it as a response to some of the people that feel that people are being too um i guess fragile or or unable to deal with uh stuff and they just they want people to tiptoe around them and so you know because there is a subset that worry about that it tends to get other people thinking about it and saying like why do they think this is true and is it true maybe we should investigate it yeah you know this is um a bit off topic to especially this early in the conversation but it reminds me of something that uh was was noted uh that you know as, as we've moved from an earlier form of culture which was which was uh, more 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 stress was placed on self-reliance and codes of honor and and you know things along those lines and we've moved there's various diagnoses of this um if you look at like the the lonely crowd back in i think that was the 1960s it was written by reisman uh talking about moving from being sort of a self-directed person to being an other directed person or if you look at discussions of moving from from an honor society to a society uh of 
Yeah, I, I'll use these sort of terms, policing and complaint, um, you know, where if, if things go wrong, we don't take things into our own hands. We go find the authority figure to, to straighten it out. Maybe there's maybe there's a, a reaction against that, saying that we we want people to have resiliency and um, that. If, if people do, then in some respect, they place, they place less burdens on all the rest of us. Maybe that's yeah, one of the I motivations for it. it. It comes down a little bit to the, you know, the, the golden uh, mean here of like finding uh, a good place in the middle because there are definitely really negatives to a strong honor culture. And you can oh, see yeah, that with, yeah. like, um, you know, uh, many like African and Middle Eastern cultures that happen to have honor killings and that that seem that is really strongly linked with um, honor because like someone's honor and extends even to their family and so in order to regain your honor you must remove that thing which caused dishonor yeah um, and and then if you go to to the extreme other then no one's taking any direct responsibility for um dealing to resolve any of their issues and so there's definitely a golden mean i think that like the, the in between where there's kind of a good balance there so resiliency and responsibility are not disconnected concepts they're in some way straying into each other you might say what well, do you, what yeah do you, think? you you have responsibility over the things that you can control i guess okay so yeah, that 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 makes a lot of sense. Um, so you know, I think a lot of people talk about resiliency as if it's a a trait that a person either possesses or doesn't possess. That like some people are born with it, and other people just don't have it. And well, too bad for them. Um, and then there's other people who look at it as something that you could have like a recipe for producing. Maybe we want to say it's neither of those either, right? We, we, we want to say that, that it's maybe in between, that we work off of the temperaments that we, we have and we can improve upon them. But it's, I mean, I don't think that there's a blueprint for becoming resilient that would work for every single person in every single case. I mean, what do you think about that? Um. Like yes and no, there, you know, there's always going to be outliers and there's bell curves everywhere, and so, especially when we're talking what, about human psychology, but there are definitely certain things, at least from the um, research that uh, Angela Duckworth has presented in her book Grit about those factors that lead to um, people having grit and a lot of that consists with uh, especially when they grow up what is their environment is their environment conducive to learning that you do have some sort of agency over the world that you live in and you have and your own abilities within that world and are you given um, challenges that you can succeed at and encouragement in order to do that and a, and a lot of her research goes to say that like this is um very much a learned skill. At it's least. malleable, right? It's yeah. something you can build upon. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, and, and so before we get into talking about different um, conceptions of, of resiliency and, and related concepts, maybe we should spend a little bit of time talking about, so, you know, this is a, a, a show where we're, we're applying philosophy to life problems. Um, mm-hmm. why, why is resiliency something 
particularly important or needed or, or good. Um, I would say one reason is, well, if we want to be happy people, and I don't mean happy like, you know, happy, shiny people, you know, great corporate drones or anything like that, but actually, you know, happy in the full sense of being fulfilled in your life and having good relationships and, you know, some, like you mentioned, agency over the things that are going to happen to you and, and being able to you know, measure up to, to the, the challenges that, that you face and stick to your, the values that you have. So if we're going to be happy in that sense, I don't see how we can do it without being at least to some degree resilient, because if we lack resiliency, we're going to collapse when we need it. It, it seems to me like it's closely connected to earlier concepts of the, the virtue of, of courage or fortitude, you know, being able to persevere and and uh, go through things, which which we have Despite to Despite adversity. Yeah, exactly. It, you know, Thomas Aquinas talks about um, that part of the, the human personality or soul as being oriented towards the difficult good. So resiliency is what we need, not when things are going great, right? And then, then everything's, we just sort of move along and keep doing what we're doing. But it, when we start running into obstacles, when people start you know, undermining us or calling us names or the physical objects that we're using unravel and break down when we need them to work, you know. Uh, I, I had a day, this is a total digression, but I had I had one of those days. I'm, I'm a little bit under the weather right now. And oh. I was having one of those, uh, you know, I have to take the dog out and I got to put a mask on and, and coat and in the morning, I it was it was almost like something out of a, a Pink Panther movie with Inspector Clouseau, where everything is like <laughs> falling apart around him. So I, I you know I, I put the mask on and and I get that on and immediately my glasses start fogging up and I'm I get my coat out of the closet and the hanger you know falls down and I have to bend down to pick it up and then I like bonk my head and it's like one thing after another right and mm-hmm. I think you know no I'm not saying that I was practicing great resiliency or anything in a case like that. <laughs> But, you know, if you if you have things like that going on, then you do need resiliency because without it, you're going to just, you know, eventually just give up. You're going to say, ah, this, it's time to go back to bed. And then what happens mm-hmm. to the dog? You know, the dog is not going to be OK with with that. Um, she needs to be walked and things have to be done. So so resiliency in some respect, it, it helps us to be happy. But it also helps us, I guess this is another aspect of it, to be able to fulfill the, the things that we need to do, not just for ourselves, but also for others, so that we're not, we're not simply being a drag on others, right? Yeah, you know, and not only that, we gain uh, fulfillment and happiness through being pro-social in doing those things that we feel are benefits to others around us. That's so, a that's a good point. Do we what about um, getting pleasure and some measure of happiness or satisfaction from being able to overcome obstacles? I I think that's absolutely a valid point. That that does happen. Like I I feel uh, pleasure every time that I you know write a particular piece difficult piece of code and it works especially if it works the first time you're like yes well that's interesting so do you do you get more enjoyment out of that if it works the first time or if there's some sort of glitch or bug that you have to track down 
and fix maybe you know five different iterations, but now you've actually got it solved. You 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 finally you know mastered this thing that was resisting you. Which do you get more enjoyment out? Of? I would. Um, there's enjoyment for both. Although I would add a, a third here, and okay, to, you know it's not quite a black and white because um, for those bugs that you do have to kind of like constantly go dig deeper and deeper there's the ones that are that you're just smashing your head against your keyboard for (laughs) hours and hours and you're not getting anywhere and there's those bugs that are like oh this is a bug i kind of it took me a bit but i figured this one out but that presented another bug and that and then i i worked on that and so the idea that there is some forward progress that i do have a a hope a light at the end of the tunnel is very uh helpful for um you know, in making sure that, that I'm actually enjoying myself because I look at it as like a giant puzzle. And once I have the ability to, if I feel like I, I'm making progress, it's still enjoyable. If it is just, you know, nothing works and I have none of my outputs are giving me any good feedback and all of my print statements are just, you know, for not, then uh, it's, it's more just a relief to be done when I finally figure it out. <laughs> yeah, that's that, that that is a different sort of thing. I you know, I I've had days when I'm teaching and nothing seems to click. And I, I sort of stumble through what it is that I I might even have notes in front of me. Usually I don't I don't need notes, but sometimes I'll actually prepare uh, notes and then like I'm not able to get the students to contribute anything and the stuff that I'm saying seems irrelevant and and you know we finally get to the end of the class and I'm like whoo thank god that that's over and I remember early on in my career when that would happen I would I would actually feel pretty bad I would feel like oh man maybe teaching isn't for me you know and then you know you go back the next next day and and usually it's going to be better than that uh, and then you have some days where it, it feels like you're hitting home runs like every single bit of conversation that you're having and those kind of counterbalance it. Um, you know, actually this, this bring, again, we have a lot to get to, but this brings up another thing. Do we, do we need to have, you might say experience in, in overcoming obstacles in order to have more resiliency? You know, as I've gone on further in my career, I can have a bad day and tell myself, well, come on, this is just a blip. This happens every once in a while. But early on, you know, it felt like like a big tragedy. Mm. Uh, so you're talking about like imposter syndrome, right? Yeah, I guess it's related to that, you know, and that that's something that a lot of people go through, too. So imposter syndrome, for those who are listening, if you don't know what it is, uh, you might have, have actually had it. You you are doing something and you feel like you you don't have the capacity or you 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 don't really belong. You might have the credentials, but you're not you're not the one who's up to the challenge, but you have to pretend like you are. So a lot of people 
enter into jobs and feel like they, they just don't belong. And, and sometimes that can be produced by the expectations of others that have been communicated to you, which are often unrealistic. You know, uh, this is a big problem for academics, particularly people who come from not just non-academic families, but first-generation college students. You know, uh, they, they get a job as, as an instructor and, and everybody else around them seems so poised and coiffed and knows exactly what they're doing. And you're like... Well, at least I found my office. Uh, now what do I do? <laughs> you know? um, and I think there's 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 equivalence of that in just about every field that we can think of, right? I mean, what right. What, what would the equivalent be for for uh, uh, computer? You know, same thing. It's just oh, you, yeah? you 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 go through and you 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 might ace all of your things, and all of a sudden you you're thrown into industry, and now you're you know expected to be producing code on a regular basis, and um, and maybe you're not quite familiar with you know uh, scrums and uh, the the way that people actually develop because a lot of times the way that people actually develop is different from the way that you're taught in school. Yeah. Um, and and so there's like you don't the same very similar idea that to what you describe in academia. You're like okay here I I think I'm doing I'm just gonna try to uh, tread water until I understand and then. Uh, and then ho- hopefully at the end of this tunnel, I'm going to be able to be able to, you know, stand up on my own two feet. But yeah, I, I think that that comes any big change in experience and uh, and environment. Um, you know, there's very little that can directly one for one prepare you for going from school to uh, to a job in the private sector or even from jobs between different companies that can be true. Yeah. Another level. People have their, their, they, they come in and they say, well, that's not how they did it in my previous company. And well, too bad. Right. Cause right? this is how we do it here. You know, I, I see, I see quite a lot of that as somebody who teaches at different places. There are people who have got their idea about what an institution ought to be like from only being in one institution for a very long time. And then when they, they're somewhere else, they're, they're like totally lost. So, I mean, does that fit it? Does that tie in with resiliency? This, this theme that we have is being able to navigate new things, a matter of resiliency in some way. Well, yeah, you're, you're being presented with um, adversity of uh, trying to adapt to a new environment and the ability to positively adapt to that new adverse environment without, you know, crumbling. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. That makes, that makes good sense. So I know you, so, you have some stuff lined up and yeah, I so I, I've I got a, too. go ahead. I've got a, a quote from, um, uh, it's from Epictetus and it's got a little bit of intro from Bill Irvine from his book, the Stoic challenge. Um, and so the Stoic philosopher, uh, Peconius, uh, Crip, uh, oh, wow. Agrippinus. Agrippinus. Yeah. Um, who was in around uh, 67 BCE, was openly critical of the Emperor Nero. A messenger came to inform him that he was being tried in the Senate. His response, I hope it goes well, but it is time for me to exercise and bathe, so that is what I will do. Subsequently, another messenger appeared with the news that he had been found guilty of treasonous behavior and condemned. To banishment or to death, he asked. To banishment, the messenger replied. Uh, Agrippinus responded with a question. Was my estate in Acrisia taken? 
No, said the messenger. In that case, said Agrippinius, I will go to Acrisia and die. So how does this illustrate um, resilience for all of us then? It's, you know, he had a, a negative, a very adver- adverse situation happening. Yeah. He's being tried for treason. He doesn't even get to go and uh, defend himself in front of the Senate. And he takes it in stride. It's like, well, I'm eating now. There's nothing I can do about this. Why should I be, you know, up in arms or, you know, worried about this thing? And then later on he finds out that he has been condemned and he's like well okay i have only so many options available to me and either i can sit here and gnash my teeth and and be upset about this or i can take the best option that's available to me at the moment and do that because what else am i going to do yeah so he is a stoic philosopher do you think it makes a difference what school he belongs to is is there something about the Stoic school that ties in particularly with, with resilience? I mean, I know what I, I think g- about that. What do you think? I'd, I'd say the dichotomy of control. Do you think that as well? or? Well, that's certainly a, a technique that, or rather not a technique, but, but more of a basic uh, concept that, that helps out, you know. And we should, we should remind our listeners of what the dichotomy of control is. So... Epictetus tells us some things are in our control or up to us and other things are not. So this is, you know, a two, twofold thing, a dichotomy. And the reason he does that is not just to be, you know, interested in classification, but there's a practical purpose to it. If we focus on the things that are actually in our control, then we can indeed do, do something about them. We can pay attention to how we, for example, think about things or our emotional responses or the choices that we're going to make. Um, if we focus too much on the things that are outside of our control, which isn't to say we should disregard them altogether, but if we focus on them as if they're the things that count the most, like our money or possessions or, or our body or reputation, we're going to be miserable, he says, in part because we're going to ignore the things that we actually can do something about, like our, our reactions to things, right? Right. And so in this regard, he has the the ability to affect what his choices are going forward and so um and he could decide to like go and and try to somehow reverse his decision but he probably knows that that is a fool's error and he's just a, a yeah. philosopher he's not a, a doesn't have much political power and so he's like well you know just <laughs> take the the path that results in the best experience for me at the time yeah, I mean, Nero would have been a particularly difficult person to, to convince of anything rational, right? But even even if you were dealing with, let's say he, was, he had to go convince Marcus Aurelius not to mess around with him. It was just all a misunderstanding. It could still remain a misunderstanding, right? That's not in our control. And Epictetus mm-hmm. says, anytime that you place your desire or your aversion in things that another person controls, like uh, whether you're condemned or not, uh, or whether you get a fair trial, you you are, in essence, making yourself a slave of that person. You are making yourself subject to whatever it is that they, they want to do. So... If we're looking at things from a stoic perspective, is that something that we should avoid in order to become more resilient, um, relying is, on relying on um, other people to do things uh, 
the way that we want them to be done or not to do things that we're averse to, to being done. I think that is you know, paramount in, you know, if you are requiring other people to either make you happy or to, you know, um, yeah, I guess that's the, really the main thing because there's lots of things that we might like, but like for our own peace of mind, our own, uh, mindfulness i guess to uh allow someone to uh their actions and their thoughts and their words to uh make us go into negative emotions is is how a friend of mine used to say um letting them live rent free within your head yeah yeah you know Uh, another another sort of uh proverb that i found particularly helpful for these sorts of things is saying not my circus, not my monkeys. You know, when when there's like things going on, because I'm the kind of person, and I and so are other people in my family who like to get into the the business and make things better, at least what we think is better, and then we we allow ourselves to feel as if we're responsible for things that we're not actually responsible for. They're not they're not up to us, and so learning to actually dissociate from things and and not to say oh i just don't care at all but just to say not my circus not my monkeys it's somebody else's thing to do you know um there's another catchphrase too <laughs> as well <laughs> not co-signing other people's bs right um, wow. you know because when when you tie in with somebody else's point of view or a project and you don't exercise a kind of you know reserve from it um then you know you you are Placing yourself on the line, you might say, right? And um, you you wind up getting committed by them to all sorts of things that, that perhaps aren't good for you. And and maybe part of being resilient then is learning how to disentangle one's own agency from that of others at the right time, you know, or mm-hmm. or, or disentangle it from the wrong sorts of others. Maybe we need to work with some people. But other people, we need to almost insulate our actions from so that they can't screw them up. (laughs) That is a very salient point, very, you know, uh, powerful point. You know, they say that we're the average of the the five people that we're closest to. Uh, Oh, yeah, yeah. Um, But, yeah, definitely the, the... those people that are closest to you definitely do have some sort of influence about what you think, what you do, and you know the whole idea of like falling in with the wrong crowd, you know, can be summed up here. Something else that the Stoics talk quite a lot about, right? The choosing our companions wisely. So you know, Epictetus has that. It's it's not quite you know if you roll around with a pig in the mud, you're going to get muddy. Uh, the pig you know is quite happy with that. He he says it about people. If you hang out with the wrong sort of people, you're going to get you know you're whatever they're doing is going to rub off on you. And I think he uses the metaphor of mud at one point. You know, um, and, and Seneca says similar stuff too, right? We the people who we routinely engage with we end up inevitably being influenced by them so what if we have you know i i I came across this really great uh phrase in a self-help book and i don't remember what it was it was the only thing i liked about the self-help book but it called some people crazy makers 
What if we no. have what if we have crazy makers in our life, like people in our family or neighbors or friend group or something like that? Um, if we it, how they do just we, want to stir the pot or they don't know well, that they're it, stirring the pot. It could be all sorts of things. Some some people really like drama. Right. So they they, they do stir the pot. Other people are just kind of selfish and oblivious to the feelings of others and they just do what they're going to do. And you can tell them, you know, I don't like when you do that and be nice and assertive with them, but they don't care. Um, there, there's other things. I, I, you know, some people have debilitating uh, issues that perhaps don't have to be de- debilitating in the way that they are for them, but they allow them to be, and then somehow it's it's our our problem, our issue to deal with. And so there could be a lot of different permutations on this. But let, let's say we don't want to like cut these people out of our life. Should if we want to be resilient, do we need to find ways to minimize the the effects of of what they're doing? I think we we probably have to do that to some degree so we you know maybe we'd use the stoic technique of dissociating the appearance from our our judgment about that and and questioning our judgment so if they're being insulting maybe we don't interpret it as as an insult and we say that's that's my part i'm i'm the one who's reading that into it uh really they're just behaving the way that they do or we we remind ourselves they're doing what they're doing because that appears to be the to them the best thing to do there's a there's a lot of techniques that the stoics have so all of those i would think would help us to to exercise resilience and build resilience while at the same time doing something else that the stoics think is really important which is maintaining our relationships and and fulfilling the duties that are inherent in in as Epictetus says the very names of the relationships like being a son or being a sibling or uh, so be- was this your original thought when you were talking about Agrippinus and that his he has a certain responsibility as a I guess a Roman citizen in this case to follow the dictates oh. of how the Roman political apparatus has been set up. I hadn't thought about that. But I think he probably would go along with it, sort of like as you know, Socrates accepting the the penalty that Athens, as he knew, very unfairly imposed on him. I think Agrippinus mm-hmm. would probably go along with that. But there's another side to it, which is, you know, if you if you're going to be sentenced and, and executed, how are you going to deal with it? Are you go, are you going to like say, oh, this is so unfair, you know, uh, Nero, a tyrant. That's that's actually probably less effective than like just saying, oh, and you don't want to just be like, well, whatever happens, uh, it's a-okay with me. Instead, you could be like, well, you know, um, I guess I'll go along with this, but everybody knows, you know, what the score is here. And, and that I think that in some ways could be, more effective, although when you're dealing with a Nero, man, that's that's, that's yeah. pretty when, low. When you deal with a tyrant, you know what what are the this, the the normal way of dealing with things get thrown out. I guess this is kind of to the the basis of the American Revolution that they believe that King George is a tyrant and thus they needed to sever their political connections with them. But yeah, that's although I more mean, of a a group versus a group instead of an individual versus the group. Yeah. I mean, in that case, there were all sorts of aggravating circumstances. I mean, you can see this in like the, the things that they're ticked off about, like one of them that, that even got put into the bill of rights was about, you know, you can't 
bored soldiers in people's houses, that seemed to have really ticked off a lot of people, right? And it makes sense because they're 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 you know, you're not just like putting them up in your room or something. You gotta feed these these hungry guys too. And uh so you know they they saw that as particularly egregious. But I mean it's interesting with the American Revolution about one third of the people were for it and about one third of the people were against it and became Tories and about one third of the people just didn't care one way or the other. And a lot, a lot of times what gets done is not because like the totality of the people turn against something. It's because some motivated individuals are able to, you know, make the case, keep making the case. And then in the case of the American revolution, do, do all sorts of actions like, storing up weapons and, um, you know, gunpowder and, and, you know, appointing officers and, you know, raising militias. And we could, we could transpose this out of that sort of circumstance and think about the resiliency, you know, I mean, think about this. So does it take resiliency to stay inside? And when you go outside to wear a mask, like the CDC is recommending that you do, I I think it, I think it actually does, you know, I I absolutely agree. Yeah. Uh, it's a very difficult thing. You're like, I just want to go outside and do all the regular things that I do on a normal basis. Yeah. And why do I have to have this thing on my face and it itches and I'm supposed to not touch my face? Yeah, yeah. all those things require a, a amount of willpower for you to overcome these things. But you'll, if you look in the grand scheme of things and like what the reasoning behind this and is this reasoning like I guess pro-social, definitely pro-social that you're know, yeah. trying to improve the health of those other people around you. Um, you know, move beyond your your selfish attitudes, I guess, hopefully. Yeah, and I would say that the people who are like really complaining about this and so bent out of shape about it, and, and it doesn't just include like people protesting in these, you know, liberate this and that sort of things. I mean, I, I wear a mask every time I go out in part because we're not taking any chances. Um, I have to walk the dog three times a day. And I remember just the other day there were there were three 20-something guys that were walking down the street, clearly not social distancing, and they were like, you know, they're the sort of, of, of people who were um, perhaps a little bit too, what would you call it? They were too public. They were they were they were putting on a show about how you know they weren't scared of of the coronavirus, and they saw me wearing a mask and walking the dog, and then they were talking very loudly about how you know they don't they don't care about it. it's not going to affect them and all that. And I was I was I didn't say anything, but I was thinking to myself, you know, the mask isn't really just to protect you. It, only about a quarter of what's going on with the mask is that you're actually like trying to keep your own. Uh, potentially infectious breath from expelling all these these things out into the the air for other people and to like make a make a scene about it which is what they were doing they were they were they were you know in the old days uh you know they used this word hypocrite and it you know just means actor somebody who puts the mask on they were putting a mask on but the mask was that of like hyper confidence you know and i and i see that and i'm like well you know it it it's going to take a while to convince some of these these people, and and they didn't necessarily have to be twenty somethings. They could have been forty year olds. They could have been sixty year olds. But it's the it's the mindset. Um, so it's not even just like laziness or selfishness or something like that. 
um, it's sometimes also a I'm going to like show everybody how unaffected I am. And in a way, so coming back to resilience, that's like the opposite of resilience in a way. You know, if we think about resilience in terms of, like you said, a, a mean kind of an Aristotelian fashion. So on the one side, you've got the, oh, I can't handle this. I break down, you know, oh, woe is me. This is, this is the end. You know, I tried so hard, but my, my uh, efforts have failed, right? We have that sort of thing. On the other side, we have the people who are, you know, so hard, so tough, but they're not really. They're, they're kind of putting on a show. That's not real resiliency. And they're, when they encounter genuine difficulties, they're probably going to fold just like the other people. And so this kind of makes me think of, you know, your topic that you have here on our list is uh, existentialism and Nietzsche. And oh, yeah, the, the famous quote that everybody brings up. I knew we had to talk yeah. about that, right? Um, but before we get to the quote, I was thinking about the idea of having like overarching stories that we are given. And so especially when you're young, you're, you're latch onto these stories of like, like this vitality and this thing isn't going to affect me yeah. as well as, you know, it is a staple of um, people that are young to you know, not quite totally take in the full consequences of their actions. Yeah. Um, and they tend to be... <laughs> Uh, a little bit more selfish just because of like the lack of lived experience. And so I, I see this, the story that is that they are exuding um, that is not a, a real story, but a story that they've just uh, glommed all, onto. And they're all telling each other back and forth, right? To like, sort of, yeah. sort of like, sort of like people who have to uh, get their friends to egg them on to, to do something, you know? Yeah. Yeah. yeah um, so what's the quote? Oh, well, it's it's the one that you find being used in everything from Conan the Barbarian at the start to, you know, self-help books. What Actually, in pop songs too, right? What doesn't kill me makes me stronger. And it's from the Twilight of the Idols, and it starts out, out of life's school of war. So that's even more, you know, uh, daring and, and, and martial. And, okay, so, you know, what does that mean? Should we should we like get hit by a car because that does not kill me? I'll I'll actually come out of that stronger. Probably not, you know. And <laughs> if you get if you get coronavirus, um, you know you may recover from it, but a lot of people are coming out of it with lasting lung and heart and and other things damaged. So I don't know that this is actually <laughs> that great of a a idea taken straight. Right? We probably have to qualify it in some ways, and that's that, yeah. That leads to the. I know you wanted to talk about the notion of anti fragility. That kind of so this there, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. And so this is the idea that there are certain systems, both in biology and and computer science and sociology, that are benefited by having stresses exerted upon it. And so, for example, how do we uh, build muscles? We lift weights, and what is that actually doing? It is actually ripping your muscle tissue, and that is the res that causes your body to respond by building more and stronger muscles in its place, as well as uh, Wolf's Law, which describes how bones grow stronger due to extreme loads, yeah. as well as a lot of the, in computer science, a lot of um, uh, machine learning is required, is basically, uh, especially on non-directed machine learning, has 
an agent, like for example, a driverless car, drive through things and it's constantly gathering oh, data. Yeah, yeah. And the more data it gets, the more adverse like interactions, the better it will be able to respond to situations in the future. You know, that reminds me of, of something interesting that we saw on the internet in the last year, which is um, the people who had the, the robots and they were pushing it around and knocking it down. And do you, do you remember that? And oh, then, and um, then everyone was like, well, this is how you get Skynet, right? Mm-hmm. This is, you know, you're, you're being mean to the robot. It's going to somehow <laughs> remember. And then they had to, they had to go online and say, we're not actually being mean to the robot. We're actually helping it to learn how to deal with adverse circumstances. You know, like uh, what, what if it's on the factory floor and something goes under its foot or knocks sit down or something like that how is it going to deal with that right yes the boston dynamics car uh dog okay yeah or dog robot whatever you want to call it yeah yeah. uh yeah so that's Um, that's 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 part of it right yeah um i don't know exactly if if at that point in time they were doing learning because you can you can have two processes. You have the, the learning process, and then you just have like the running what you've already been learned. So you think some of yes. guys were actually being mean to the robot? <laughs> I guess. Is it that opens up a whole can of worms? Can and how can you be mean to it? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. yeah, and and at what point in time does a robot have agency or adamantness? Yeah, uh, know, but that is. Uh, far afield, but yeah. You know, I, I, somebody who <clears throat> I, I wasn't actually thinking about talking about originally, but now it brings it to mind, um, is the great uh, strategist of the 20th century, the late 20th century, Edward Litvak, who has this wonderful book called Strategy, the Logic of War and Peace. And he doesn't use the word anti-fragile, which is, you know, Talib uh, essentially coins that. But he talks about something very similar in how... Um, the investments that people make into, for example, defensive systems, they often turn out to be um, a bad investment. And they, they get beaten by all sorts of countermeasures because the natural thing in any sort of strategic back and forth is is what he, what he terms dialectics. And he's, he's taking this, you know, he's going all the way back to Clausewitz, who it was a great, you know, uh, military theorist in the early 19th century. Um, but it, it, it's very interesting because Lutvak applied this to the Soviet Union in a book called The Grand Strategy of the Soviet Union. He uh, applied it to whether aircraft carrier groups are really a great investment, like a lot of people were thinking that they were uh, back in the, I think the book was from the 90s, you know, the, the strategy. And um, it, it's a similar thing that, that a lot of systems that we often take as being fragile or as being rigid turn out to be anti-fragile. Many, many other people turn out to be anti-fragile. And uh, then we are posed, well, once they respond, we're, we're surprised and we're posed with our own challenges in dealing with them. And, you know, it, it doesn't always have to be antagonistic. We could actually, in some cases, be disabled by the responses of people who we thought would never want to cooperate with us and never be reasonable. Suddenly, 
being so, and uh, we're suddenly placed in a position where maybe we have challenges of too many resources or too many choices to make or things uh, not presenting that constant pushback on us. And then, you know, what would anti what would anti fragility or or resilience uh, tell us about these sorts of things? Would it say just, um, you know, great, everything worked out for you. Take it easy now. <laughs> I, I don't know that that would be the response if you're really no, because, because then it presents you new problems. You know, uh, they're good problems, yeah. but they're definitely there's still obstacles to. Uh, you know, say everyone wants to work together, but then how do you organize all the everyone to work together and work together well? And there's still things to progress and to uh, tweak to hopefully come to better outcomes, um, even though there's not a, a direct antagonist. Okay. Yeah, that makes sense. So, um, so is there more to say about anti-fragility, you think? I think we're good. We might need to move down to our question if we're going to sure. actually make it to that. Yeah, yeah. That Unless sounds, there's that anything that good. you really need from the, the main topic. Well, I, I just wanted to mention that Margaret Graver, who wrote a wonderful book called Stoicism and Emotion, also gave the plenary address at Stoicon when it was in Toronto several years ago. And she did a, a discussion about how the Stoics are different from the Cynics and the Epicureans when it came to the emotions and, and dealing with the emotions. And the Epicureans, it's sort of like Goldilocks, right? The, the Epicureans in some way are too soft and the Cynics are too hard. They focused on like trying to almost eradicate things that that would interfere with you know virtue and happiness and and she viewed the stoics as having a a better position for as she put it the heart um you know and so i think her view on that is it fits in really well with this notion of anti-fragility the, the goal is not to like harden oneself up so that you'll never have challenges you'll you know there, it's not even a question of overcoming them nor is it a matter of like withdrawing yourself from life so that things work out better for you uh, the soft epicurean way rather it's to be able to handle the challenges that come to you in in your emotional responses and to be able to shape them and remold them and then come back at things sort of like the wrestler getting back up after the the fall so i, I think that that was the only thing i wanted to really stress um i guess i i want to just touch really quick on reframing which is a yeah yeah a, a way of on um, you know I guess we'll get to it a little bit with our practice of negative visualization. But this is to uh, change what you think is bad, and like you know, in in negative visualization, you you think about um, like the worst possible things that could happen, and then once you realize that those things don't happen, you you realize that your life now is actually a lot better. Than yeah. Uh, the the what could happen as the the worst, but uh, yeah, it lends a sense of perspective, right? Mm-hmm. And um, and it helps us uh, learn from the mistakes we've made um, by by reframing. And uh, yeah, I'm going to move on to the question here. Then, so uh, the question is, yeah, so, uh, go ahead. Wait, okay, um. How to foster resiliency in someone who lacks it? 
um, someone who is close to, uh, you know, do you, is it better for you to um, help them uh, learn resiliency or is it better to shield them from the, the negative and the antagonistics people of the world? Yeah, and this is this is a very common problem that um, parents have for one thing, but not just parents. But spouses can have that, or uh, significant others. Maybe it, it also affects friends. Um, teachers sometimes have to deal with this in terms of students, and eh, some some students actually have to do a little bit of shielding of of teachers from time to time as well, right? And I think this, this applies to the workplace. Um, you know, what do you do with your coworker who just can't handle getting bad news or maybe even can't handle being given additional deadlines? You know, do you, do you try, how, how do you, you know, deal with this? Should you try to support them in some way and try, do, you know, do you take up the slack? That's not actually supporting them, right? Because ideally you want them to be resilient it's good for them to be resilient and it's also not great for them to be continually leaning on you or do you you know do you shield them from it and say oh, they they can't handle it or do you cut them loose that would be another option as well although hopefully not exercised in too many cases right uh i guess my my first feeling is like if you can teach them some of the skills we talked about how uh we're on a spectrum here and we everyone's got a, a, a natural proclivity to resilience or not but is definitely something that is malleable yeah and it pres- provided the right environment for doing that so if you have those those friends or co-workers if you can provide them some situations to like help build up their um, own confidence their uh in the ability to actually be resilient to things then it's going to make your life and their lives better yeah that's that's Uh, actually that that you know and you might even like i'm not saying like keep score or necessarily like write things down in a journal but maybe this is something that happens over time right it's not like people snap their fingers and suddenly become more resilient it, it happens like like building muscle, right? You, you work out and it gets a little stronger and you work out and it gets a little stronger. So instead of... So for example... Yeah, go ahead. I, I, in an uh, organization I used to be part of, um, when new members joined, we would give them positions within the organizations that were small and minor and easy to do in order for their, as a first couple months within the organization, that they would gain um, their trust in themselves that they are able to do these things yeah. and you know part of it was used as a barometer to see if they could actually uh, come through and so they would give be given more responsibility but also it was like okay if you if you throw people right into the deep end it's kind of sink or swim but <laughs> yeah. if you if you That's ease the them into it of doing things right <laughs> yeah but but to if you, if you don't have the resilience built up, then that's that's just gonna you know be a shock to their system. You need to yeah. um, get them into a, a challenging position, not a fearful position. You know, it, I I have set up classes in such a way that students get to fail early and fail on fairly low stakes things, so that they then can take you know the feedback that i give them and and sometimes it's just a matter of like actually seeing paying attention to what the assignment requires them to do mm-hmm. um, but sometimes there's other things going on and so by failing in in small ways early on they can you know 
come back from that and, and start to succeed in being able to perform according to the, the standards that that we want. Um, and, and, you know, so, some of the students get frustrated with that. They're like, you know, I don't like to fail. Well, you know, failing is going to be a big part of your life. So, <laughs> you know, you may as well learn how to handle it early on and it's going to be a big part of career and it's going to be a big part of relationships. So, uh, you know, in, in a way, resiliency necessarily involves learning how not just to fail and not screw everything up or, or blow it out of proportion, but how to come back from it, right? How to persevere. Right. I, I think there's so much pressure on a lot of people to get it right the first time oh, always yeah, especially yeah. within an academic setting that any setback and I, I have experienced that in my own life as well in the academic setting of like getting a, a, a paper that I, I thought deserved better and having to go and like <laughs> go through everything line by line to figure out like what what were you thinking or what was Me? I thinking why why am I failing here Me too. and it was very frustrating yeah um but you you learn the more that you are exposed to that failure, the more you realize that it's not a bad thing. And so there's the mantra in Silicon Valley: uh, "Fail fast and fail often." Yeah. And uh, the, because basically you actually learn more from failure than they do from success. You yeah, success you know, can lead to complacency, right? Right. Yeah. Uh, so you know, talking about like. The, the last bit of your thing of potentially dropping your friend or um, like, is there a, a time when there are people in your life that just do not have any resiliency and do they, are they no longer kind of like, I guess, worthy of, of your friendship? What's your opinion on that? I, I don't know that it would be a, I mean, you could, if it's about like friendship in the fullest sense, I guess we could use words like worthy or, or things like that because we should be able to choose our friends. We, we shouldn't have friendship like thrust upon us as like a big obligation that we, we have to have, right? When it comes to other kinds of relationships, you know, um, maybe it's less like that. You know, uh, when we take marriage vows, it's there's a good reason why it's for richer and poorer, right? In sickness and health and all all that sort of stuff. Um, and you know, I think when it comes to familial relationships, unless somebody's being like abusive or exploitative or or something like that, we probably shouldn't cut them loose. But um, that doesn't mean that they we have to like pretend that it's wonderful to be with them all the time if they lack <laughs> resilience or that we wouldn't like. I mean, here's a, here's sort of the bottom line. We don't want people just to have resilience so they're not a pain in the rear for us. We want them to have resilience because it's better to have it than not to have it. It's it to, to lack it is in some way to live a life that becomes impoverished because it subjects one to being pushed around by the fear of failure or other anxieties or uh, one's inability to handle one's uh, emotional response of anger or all sorts of other things, right? It's resiliency is something that allows a human being to exercise agency and to, to feel like they're, they're in control of their little bit of the universe that they, they do control. All right. I think we need to move on to our practice, which is negative visualization. And I touched on that just a little bit. Um, yeah. So we, now we, we, we discussed this a couple episodes back. So we're bringing some new and richer things to it this time. Right. Mm -hmm. 
Um, so we, we build resilience by becoming acquainted with manageable stress. And one way we can do this is through negative visualization, the idea of sitting and thinking of negative things that happen. This is kind of the opposite of positive thinking. Yeah. Um, uh, because you know the problem with positive thinking is you think something great is going to happen and then reality comes <laughs> and smacks you in the face because everything didn't turn out quite well. And so the idea here is, well, if you look at it, the worst things that could happen or bad things that could happen, then you realize that most of the time those things actually won't happen. And now your perception of what could happen to reality is a good one. Um yeah. There's there's also a, a reframing aspect to it as well. Sometimes if we sit and we we really look at the things that we fear or dread or you know view as as threatening to us, if we if we think it through, there I mean there's two things that can happen with it. One is we can realize well actually that's not that bad. You know, like what what would happen if I did get sick? Well, you know, if I get sick, I, I might die from it, but I might not, you know. So maybe getting sick is and not. And if you do is, die, then it doesn't matter anymore. True, yeah. And and there's that whole thing. I mean, we could go into the like, well, you know, if you go to heaven, if you go to hell, that the, that leads to an Irish joke eventually uh, where you're shaking hands with all your friends down in hell, right? I don't know if you've ever heard that one. But it's, it's no, sort of, but it sounds it's like, a, it's like a decision tree, right? Um, and so, I mean, there's that aspect to it. So we, we can become you know, we can be, we have a better perspective on it. You know, like what if I'm giving a, a, a talk and my pants fall down? Eh, people will laugh. It might go on YouTube, but it's not going to be the end of my career. You know, I might become the right. pants fall down guy. Um, so that that's, and that's, it's only going to get worse if you get super embarrassed up on stage. <laughs> True. <laughs> or start shouting at people. Don't look at my yeah. pants. You know? <laughs> or so there, there are three big things that I can see that are benefits of doing the negative visualization is um, one, we can become desensitized to those things that we might have feared that yeah. might happen to us. Uh, two is that we now have a safe place to think through what we can and should do in that situation. Cause a lot of times these situations are thrust upon us and we're like, Oh shoot, what do I do? Cause um, you haven't thought it through before, right? Exactly. Yeah. And so this pr helps uh, us from freezing up because we already have a kind of a plan in place. And the last one is to um, to anchor our perception of reality to something worse than the reality that we actually are experiencing. Yeah, and that puts it in perspective too, right? We mm -hmm. say it could be worse. Um, I think a lot of people, when they hear that, they're like, oh, that's a pessimist there. But no, no, that's that's actually somebody who's being optimistic. They're, they're saying this isn't as bad as it could get. Right. You know, another thing, too, with negative visualization from a stoic perspective, and I know we got to wrap up really quick here, it could be used with the dichotomy of control to say, listen, if these things happen to my possessions, my reputation, my body, um, that is not the end of the world for me because none of these things can actually turn me into a bad person. I think a lot of people think that if they, and it's because of our culture, if they're not successful or they go from being successful to being, you know, as we often say, failures or losers, that's somehow that's a moral failing on their part when i mean we know that the economy is not fair uh so many other things are not fair and people lose out because of that i think we have to wrap up now and we end with people are disturbed not by things but by their judgments about those things be well <laughs> <laughs>